All right, guys, thank you guys for being here this morning. This is the fourth and final message in our new series um, called Change. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3. And while you do that, I'm going to say a short prayer and we'll go ahead and get started. Father God, I just want to thank you so much. Uh, Lord, I want to thank you, Lord, just for the ability that we could to come in here this morning and just to worship you, Father, just to sing your songs of praise and lift our hands and just enjoy the company of your presence, Lord God, and enjoy each other in the community of our church, Father. I just want to thank you, Lord, just for all the missions teams we've got going and coming, Father God, just for the group that showed up Friday morning to donate a few hours of their time to, to help people in need, Lord God, and just for the people that we help, Father, that you'll just let your spirit guide them and be with them and comfort them, Father. And I pray, Lord, that um, through the remainder of this service, that you just let your spirit be with us, God, no matter whether we had a great week or a horrible week, Lord God, or we've got a, a bad week ahead of us or a stressful week at work, Lord God, coming up, that just for a few minutes that we could just block everything else out, Lord God, and just give you our hearts and give you our minds, God. And I pray, Lord, that you will just take me completely out of this message, Lord God. Just let me be an empty vessel for your spirit, Lord God. I pray Lord, that you'll just consume us, consume us with your word, Lord God. Speak truth to our hearts in your holy and your precious name. Amen. So if you have not been here, I just want to catch up real fast. We have been in a series called Change, and this series, this series is not about a specific area of your life. This is not about your marriage. This is not about finances. This is not about those things specifically, but this is just about God's viewpoint of change and what change is in our lives. And, and one of the stories that we started off with was the prodigal son, and we talked about uh, the prodigal son, how he, he took his inheritance, he took his money from his father, and he went to the city, and he wasted it all, and he wound up, uh, after a few months or years, we don't really know how long he was gone, but he wound up sitting in a pigsty, feeding pigs and sleeping with pigs and just, just not, not in a great place. And he looked around and the Bible said that he came to his senses. I mean, in that moment, he knew that there was something in his life that he had to change. And that's what this series is about, those moments in your life. Those, right after you have a fight with your spouse and you guys just uh, talked about divorce maybe for the first time or you get to the end of the month and you realize and you're not really managing your finances, but your finances are managing you or you're about to head off to school and you realize that, that you don't really know what you're doing or where you're going or you're not really sure about things in life or you've just you know, committed 10 or 15 years to something that now you wake up and know that it, it was a horrible mistake and you've just got this thing. It's these moments. It could be a dramatic thing. It could be a super serious thing. It could just be something minute or small. But the idea is that all of us, we get to places in our life where we know that we need change. And sometimes change is viewed as a negative thing, but it's not a negative thing. It is a beautiful thing. This is kind of our main scripture that we've looked at every single week. It says this, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, so all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. And it's just the idea that when we as Christians and as believers, when we put our faith in Christ and we start to follow after Jesus, that that separation, that veil between us and the presence of a living God is torn down, and that we have not just the ability to see God and to know God, but we have the ability to reflect God and his word and his wisdom in every single area of our life. And that's kind of what, that's kind of what this whole series is about. And we know that, that Jesus and the Spirit of God is, is every single day trying to make us more and more like him so that we can reflect Christ in every single area of our life. And we talked about all kinds of things. We talked about the four things that we need and change during that first week. We talked about coaches or preachers and teachers and apostles and evangelists and life group leaders and anybody in your life uh, that can teach you the word of God and show you and coach you and train you up and how we need those things in our lives. And we talked about the truth, the scriptures, and we talked about new thinking and we talked about action. And once we know that knowledge 
without action is worthless and action without knowledge is foolishness, but that we need action in our lives. And, and we went on and we just broke down the idea of new thinking and we, we learned that it's not, it's not about um, that transformation is not going to lead to new thinking, but new thinking is going to lead to transformation. We've gone through all of this stuff, and we talked about the lens of life and the map and, and all this cool stuff, and, and it's been an awesome series, I feel like, for me anyway, coming up to this point. And, and now we're getting down to the last, and we're closing out this series. And we're closing out this series with what is, in my, in my opinion, one of the most powerful messages in this series. It's one of the most, uh, based in one of the most powerful scriptures um, in the Bible. The, in Philippians chapter 3, uh, many scholars, all the great theologians, all the people that are way smarter than me will tell you that Philippians chapter 3 is not only just a theme, um, the highlighted theme of the book of Philippians, uh, but it's one of the highlighted themes of the book of the New Testament, and that potentially one of the most powerful scriptures and powerful chapters in all of the Bible. And it's one of those, it's one of those uh, chapters where Paul is writing down and he's just spilling out his heart through the entire chapter. And I'm not going to preach the entire chapter to you this morning because eventually you guys are going to want to eat lunch. And I want to I be able to honor that. But I am going to touch on a lot of the beginning of it because it is so powerful. And then we'll wind up uh, getting uh, to the meat of the message um, this morning. But to kind of break it down, in, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul starts off, he's getting in a conversation with them, and he starts off by talking about the things that we depend on every day. And he kind of he starts talking a little bit of junk uh, to people in, in Paul's language. He kind of says, he says, listen, I, guys, I want you to understand something about me. And you can read this in the first few verses of uh, Philippians chapter 3. It's not going to be up here. I'm just going to tell you about it. And so he kind of comes up and he says, listen, guys, I want you to understand something, that if there was anybody there's anybody that you know that has the, the ability or, or that had reasons to put trust in this world or to put trust in the flesh or to put trust in what the world values, it was me. And he goes through all the things that he did. He goes through his, and, and things that we have to learn about Paul or that we know about Paul is that, that Paul was not just, you know, you, everybody talks about, you know, God used, you know, 12 fishermen to change the world, and he did. But Paul was not a fisherman. Paul was the man. All right, Paul had intellect beyond intellect. Paul was one of the most educated men of his day, and his assistant who traveled around with him and wrote uh, much of Acts and, and, and Luke was Luke, and he, Luke was a doctor, and Luke was one also a highly educated man. These, these two individuals were, were, not, were not fishermen. There, and there's nothing wrong with a fisherman. There's nothing wrong with a working man, but these two individuals were not that. They were incredibly intellectual. They were incredibly intelligent. They were the most uh, in, educated men of their day, and not only that, but that the couple realms of life, at least at this time, that you could climb the corporate ladder of the day was in the religious sector or in the political sector or in the military sector usually. And Paul had risen to the top of, of almost all of that. He was, he was a high as you could possibly go in the religious sector of life. He commanded respect. He, he was feared. He was known. He was famous throughout Jews. He was, had just as much political power in Rome as he did in Israel and, and with the Jewish people. And, and when he came down, when he said that I want to start taking out the Christians, he had enough military po uh, political power that they actually gave him a small army to command so that he could go about all of the world chasing down and hunting down Christians. I mean, this man is not Peter. There's nothing wrong with Peter being a fisherman, but this man is not Peter. 
This is Paul. This was Saul of Tarsus. He was famous on all the land. He was so famous for the things that he had done is that many of the Christians, when he got saved, they didn't want anything to do with him because they already knew about him because he was famous. And so he starts off Philippians chapter 3 naming some of those great things that he had accomplished and that he had done. And he said, I am telling you right now, I'm not being arrogant. I'm not being prideful. But if there was any man who had a reason to trust in the things of the world, to trust in the, the corporate success and to trust in the mastery of the law, and to trust in the politics and to trust in the power of the military and to trust in all these things in the flesh. He said, it's me. And it doesn't specifically say it, but I mean, most scholars will tell you that anybody that had that much political power, anybody that was that well-known, anybody that had that much pull in the religious sector had some gold coins floating around in his pocket somewhere. So he was probably a wealthy man before his salvation. And he gets up to this point and he says, you go find somebody that accomplished more than me. You go find somebody that has more reason to put the, their trust in the flesh and their trust in this world, and I will promise you, apples to apples, toes to toes, I will beat them when it comes to putting their trust in the flesh. And so he names all of this stuff, and he says, listen, this was who I was. This is who I am. And most of the things that he named and most of the things that he talked about are the very same things that you and I depend on every single day of our lives, that you and I strive after every single day of our lives. They're the same things that we work towards. And he says, guys, I want you to understand something. If there's anybody that's got a reason to put their trust in those things, it's me. And then he stops and he goes on. This is where we're going to pick it up right here. He says, I once thought these things were valuable. All the things that I just mentioned to you. He goes, I just, I once thought that these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him sharing in his death so that one way or the other I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So he starts off with saying, I once thought these things, all of those things that I just told you about, all of the things that we depend on day in and day out, all of the things that we strive toward, all of the things that we invest so much of our time and so much of our life into acquiring. He said, like you, I once thought these things were valuable. Right, but now I don't think that. Now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ. And he goes through all that he desires in Christ. And then he gets into well, what I want in my life. I want to know Christ. I want to experience the mighty power. I want to suffer with him. And I want to experience the resurrection of the dead. So go into the next slide. This is basically, if you go through and you break down everything that he said, this is what Paul says about my life. Paul says, I desire to know Christ, be like Christ, be with Christ. Live for Christ, sacrifice for Christ, suffer for Christ. Paul said, That's what I want in my life. That's what my life, this is what my life used to be about. It used to be about the political game. That's what my life used to be about. It used to be about climbing the corporate ladder. That's what my life used to be about. It used to be about acquiring wealth. That's what my life used to be about. It used to be about being known. It used to be about all these things, all these things that we love in our culture. He said, it used to be about that. But now that I know Christ, and now that I've seen Christ, and now that i talk to Christ, and I know what Christ has done, he said, this is what I want my life to be like. This is what I want every area of my life to be like. I want to know Christ. I want to be like Christ. I want to be live Christ. I want to live for Christ. I want to sacrifice for Christ. And I want to suffer for Christ. I want every area of my life to be Christ-centered. 
everything. Everything. I want my relationships. I want my friendships. I want my finances. I want my purpose. I want my career. I want every single thing that I do. Everything that is me, I want it to be Christ. He says, this is what it is. And at the end of the day, this is what this series is about. It's about seeing and reflecting the glory of a living God in every single area of our life. It's about making those changes and allowing the Spirit of God to change us so that we can become like Christ, so that at some point in life we can reflect Christ in every area of our life, in our marriages, in our finances, in our businesses, in our, in our careers, in our friendships, in the way we raise our children, in every single area of our life that we can accomplish this. And then Paul stops and he goes on. And for the next few verses, Paul talks about his role in the process. It's a unique few scriptures. Because everything else, it talks about the power of God changing us. And it is a powerful thing. And, and Paul absolutely believes that we can see and should reflect the glory of the Lord. Do you know why? Because he wrote it. He wrote it. He understands that part of it. He understands that it's the Spirit of the Lord that changes us. But Paul says, listen, I've got a responsibility in this too. I've got a place in my life too. And so for a few verses, he talks about the way that he handles his side of things. And it's a unique thing. And we're going to take look at, uh, look at a few of these things. And then we're going to close with one of the most powerful scriptures in all of the Bible. And Paul starts off with this right here. He says this. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal. He says, I haven't, it's not that I've already obtained all of this, all the things that he just said. That should give you hope and encouragement. It gives me encouragement because I think of Paul as like this super prophet and he kind of was. But he says, all of these things I want, I want to know Christ and live with Christ and desire Christ and, and sacrifice for Christ and suffer for Christ and I want to represent and reflect Christ in every single area of my life. And Paul says, I've not already obtained all of this. I'm not there yet. I haven't, that word, that word right there where it says already arrived at my goal in the truest of the Greek, it literally means the sought after perfection. It just says, I know what Christ wants from me and I have not reached it yet. But what I want you to see about this scripture is that Paul has goals in his life. Paul has set some spiritual goals in his life. And see, a lot of times in the church, a lot of times we don't like the words like goals. We don't like the word like work. We don't like that. We don't, we, we don't like because we, well, that's too, that's too businessy. That, that's too secular. That's too, you mean, you mean making plans to be like Christ? No, 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 no. I just want to, uh, you mean, you mean, you mean being prepared and, and working towards and thinking about and being smart about and being strategic about being like Christ? That doesn't make any sense to me. Now, are you sure that's Christian? Because that's kind of what the businesses do. That's kind of what, that's kind of what they, you know, is this, is this like self-help books? And we, we stay away from these words and we're afraid of these words. And let me, my point is to you this morning is that Paul set goals in his life. He set spiritual goals in his life. And a lot of the reasons why we still tr struggle with the same things we've always struggled with and a part of the reason why we are still the same person we've always been and a part of the reason because we don't set any goals in our life. Goals are a very powerful thing. And within that Greek, like I said, it said it means the sought after perfection. It means I know what Christ wants in my life. And so what Christ's goals are for my life become my goals. Goals are an incredibly powerful thing. 
There's three things I want you to know about goals this morning. Goals are statements of faith. That means when you get to a place in your heart and you get to a place in your life and you look within an area of your life and you can be honest with yourself. That's the other thing. Is he said, I've not yet obtained this. He said he was humble. He knew in his heart, he knew in his life that he had areas of his life that he needed to work on. And he knew in his life that he was not perfect. And he knew in his life that he was striving towards a certain end. And he said, I, but I want it. I haven't reached it, but I want it. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not just going to wallow in my imperfection. I'm going to set a goal in my marriage. I'm going to set a goal in my relationships. I'm going to set a goal in my finances. I'm going to set a goal. I want to reflect the glory of the living God in my marriage and in my finances and in my relationships. And so that becomes a goal in my life that I set up. And when you set that goal up, you immediately make a statement of faith. This is what I want my life to be. Hebrews says that you cannot please God without faith. When you set up a goal in your life, you create an accountability on God. You create account, a dependency on God because you say, I know right now that within my marriage that I am not reflecting the glory of the Lord. So you have two options. You can 50 years from now look at your marriage and say the same thing. I still, after 50 years, don't reflect the glory of the Lord in my marriage. Or you can say, you know what? I'm going to strive for it. I'm going to work for it. I'm going to make this a goal in my life. A year from now, two years from now, three years from now, I'm going to do everything in my my power to see that my marriage reflects the glory of the living God. Because when you make a goal, let me tell you this, you will never make a goal about something you don't care about. Do you know the most disorganized person when they want to go on vacation bad enough, even if they don't consciously say it, they start setting goals? The most laziest person, the most disorganized person in the world, when they want to go on vacation next summer, when they look at everybody that's going on vacation and they say, next summer I'm going to go on vacation, all of a sudden they become organized. All of a sudden they can handle their finances pretty well. All of a sudden they can start saving money. All of a sudden the things that they waste their money on aren't as important. It's because they had a goal in their heart, it was a goal in their mind, and they started to work for it naturally. Why don't we make goals in our spiritual lives? Why don't we set up goals in our marriages, in our relationships, and in our finances? Why don't we look at our life and say, God, I know that this is not what it's supposed to be, but I'm going to set up a goal that it will be sooner or later and start working towards it. And I think that sometimes we just have this mentality that's just like, that just seems like, it just seems like too like strategic or smart or something. It's just, too, I mean, should we like really actually attempt to be like Christ? I just, I mean, it just, it feels too workish for me. Goals are statements of faith. The other thing goals will do is they'll keep you going. How many times have you said in your life, all right, I'm going to do something, and then you did it with perfection the first time you tried it? All the liars and prideful people, raise your hands. I did very rarely. Very rarely do we set up real major goals and we wake up the next day and we've, we've accomplished it. I, I want to save $2,000 to start putting into a fund for my child so that they can go to college. And then tomorrow you wake up and have $2,000 in the bank. That $2,000 goal you set to put into some type of account to save it for your child to go to college, it's real easy on Monday, the first day, to put $100 away. But a week from now or two weeks from now or three weeks from now when, when you want to go eat $30 meal and, and you cut it down to a $15 meal so you can save that $15 to put it into that account, 
it's going to get difficult, and it's going to get hard, and it's going to get, when you keep going, but if you have that goal in your mind, I know I could get ribeye, but I also could just get a burger. What's more important, the goal is that I'm saving money for my child. It keeps you going through the hard times and through the tough times. The third thing I want you to know about keeping goals is this. Goals keep what's valuable in focus. When you set up a goal in your life, goals will always surround what you think is valuable. You ever notice how we, we make goals financial goals? We do it all the time. I want to be able to save this much money. I want to be able to make sure we get here. I, you know, I have a goal in my job that within the fifth year, I'm going to be able to climb this where. I'm going to be able to get here. I want to be able to get into this position. Or as in education, I want, to be able, I want to be able to get my master's or my doctorate by this age. Or I'm going to be able to climb here. I want to be able to be the manager of this place. We set goals in our lives all the time. Even if we don't call them goals, even if we don't consciously say it, we set goals naturally by what we care about and what we value the most. And when you start to set goals in your spiritual life and you start to set goals in your marriage and your relationships and in your finances and while you're raising your children, when you set these goals, it will keep what is valuable focused. Because I know not everybody's got ADD like me. I get that, all right? If you're not laughing, it's okay. I'm not offended by it. Like, I've got ADD, and I know that nobody, not everybody's got it. But listen, this whole entire country has attention deficit disorder to a certain degree. All right, let's just face facts. We do it all the time. I mean, we're sitting there. We, we know what? Our wives, man, our wife, she's the hottest. She's the best. She is the, she is the who's that girl? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, I love my husband. He's got his little pop belly. He's so cute. I love him so much. He's just like, dang, that dude's been in the gym. And then, you know what I'm saying? We Our attention... <laughs> You know, we we're so satisfied with our income until we meet somebody with a little bit better car than us, right? I'm, I, dude, I'm, I feel so good about what I'm making now. Look, I can, I can buy this, and I can do this, and I can get this, but I can't afford that. How did he get that plane? What is he doing? And then all of a sudden, you start looking at this, and then what? Oh, now my car's not as cool as it was a minute ago because he's flying around in a plane. Seriously. Our attention just, everybody makes fun of me for it. You do the same thing. I'm just smarter than you because I take medicine for it. <laughs> True story. You want to know a secret? I ran out yesterday, so it's just me this morning. <laughs> so if it's a little scattered, you know why. Just kidding, but I'm being dead serious. Goals keep what's valuable and focus. Because there's going to come down to those times in life when our attention starts drifting away. And you know what? Today, when you, you, you get outside, you have this just knockout, drag out, blow up fight, you know, with your wife or your husband. And you guys, for the first time, you start talking about separation and, and the words divorce come out of your mouth. And you, you go to your separate rooms or you leave and you take a drive and you come back and you both realize in this moment, in this moment, my marriage is so valuable to me. In this moment, I know that there needs to be changes. In this moment, I know that we're not reflecting the glory of God, but I want to reflect the glory of God. And so in that moment, your marriage becomes number one and you start making changes and you, you start canceling plans with the guys and the girls and you just, you, you start making it just this thing. But then, but then things kind of get a little better and then things kind of get a little this. And a week from now, or two weeks from now, or three weeks from now, it's, it's not as important as it used to be. But if you set goals, it will keep it valuable to you. You will know three months from now, you will think back and you will remember what it was that day and how valuable it was. And if you make it a true, genuine goal in your life, it will keep it valuable for you when the attention starts drifting at other places. 
It's a very powerful, powerful thing. I want to give you just a short example about mine and Courtney's life. And when we were in college, one, I was an idiot, point blank. We wind up in a not-so-great situation where Courtney, because I was an idiot, was thinking, Jordan's an idiot. And, and we, were, we, were, we were questioning things. And we started to look at our life, and we started to realize something about our life, that somewhere along the lines, we kind of excluded Christ from our relationship. And somewhere along the lines, our, our relationship with each other and Christ being the center of that relationship quit being what was valuable. And so we got to this place, and at the time, we didn't call it a goal, but we got to this place, and we knew in our hearts, and we knew in our minds that we were going to have to set a goal. And so we said, listen, we need to know if it's you and me. We need to know if we're going to be in ministry together. We need to know where we're going to live. We need to know all of these things. And so we said, listen, for the next three months, this is going to be our goal. At the end of this three months, we're going to seek God's face, and we're going to know, and we're going to make some changes, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and we're going to get to this place. We went on a 21-day fast in prayer, and we just got with each other, and every day, just about every day, we read the Bible together, and we did studies together, and we prayed together, and we went, started going to church. Like Every time the doors were open somewhere, we went together. And I'm going to tell you something very intriguing and interesting about that 21 days and then that three-month period. By the end of that three-month period, I was more madly in love with her than I ever had been in my entire life. And within nine months from that point, you got to clap, from nine months from that point, I was pastoring this church. I was living in Mark's house. Courtney was living in my grandmother's closet. Right? I won that deal. We got married, mainly because she didn't want to live in a closet anymore. Right, we bought a little house, and my life is what it is. Right, but what I'm telling you is, is that, that we literally, we looked around at our life, and we knew, we knew if things keep going the way they are, who knows what could happen. And so what we met a very specific spiritual goal in our life. And don't think it was like, don't think, that was a, that was 21 days turned into three months, went to nine months. It was about a year total. Don't think it wasn't hard at some point. Don't think when I, when I moved up here and, and took this job and Courtney was like, I love you, but I'm not coming unless I get a job. Don't think that wasn't hard. You know what I mean? Don't think that that wasn't. And we went through, and I mean, and, but every time we kept our eyes focused on this goal because we knew what we wanted out of our lives and we knew that this was marriage. And those things will keep you going when things get distracted, when things get hard, and when things get difficult. Spiritual goals in your life is something you need in your life. You have goals everywhere else. Why don't you have goals in your spiritual life? Paul had goals, and you need to have goals in your life. Paul goes on to say this. He said, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. And I want you to read this sentence very slowly. I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. He said, I press on to take a hold of that, the reason that Christ Jesus took a hold of me. Does that make sense? I'm working towards, I'm pressing on, I'm striving towards, depending on what Bible you're using, what translation it is, I'm pressing on to take a hold of or to gain or to make my life the way it should be, the way that Christ wanted it to be, the reason that Christ saved me. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal that you understand this. He's saying, I know why Christ saved me. 
I know what Christ wants from my life, so I am going to press on to attain what I know that Christ wants for my life. He was being another word that we don't really want to use in church. He was being proactive. All right. Just about every good sermon, I get to offend you one time. So here's what I get to offend you during this sermon. Many of our spiritual lives are like an irresponsible teenager in the relationship that that irresponsible teenager has with their parents. Many of us, many of the time, that is our spiritual lives with Jesus Christ. You offended? Cool, I'm not done yet. Okay, so let me give you this example. How many of you have ever raised, at some point, irresponsible teenagers? Just raise your hand. Or irresponsible kids. All right, if you have kids and you did not raise your hand, you are lying through your teeth. All right, let me, let me, let me respond. Let me, let me. When I was younger, I did not take seriously anything anybody in authority said to me. Because why? It was kind of my mentality. So when I would stay with my mom or I would be at dad's in the summertime or, or whatever it was, and, and they would go to work, and you know, I would wake up, and they would say, I want you to clean your room, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do that. And then about nine hours later, when they got home from work, and I was sitting on the, t- uh, on the couch watching TV and having accomplished nothing that they said to me that morning, what would you describe me as? An irresponsible teenager. Okay, so here, here's what I'm talking about. Why am, I, why am I irresponsible in that moment? Why am I irresponsible in that moment? Let me say, okay, I was 15 during that little story. Let's go back to when I was one years old. If I was one years old, just for the sake of the story, my parents were horrible people, and they left me home alone when I was one years old. And they said, Jordan, today I want you to stay home, and I want you to clean the house. I want you to feed the dogs. All right, I want you to go clean the pool. All right, you're one years old. I want you to go do these things. And they left and they came back and then they were mad. Would I be an irresponsible one-year-old? No, why would I not be an irresponsible one-year-old? Because I don't have the ability to do any of the junk they told me to. All right, because I'm one years old. But if you go to a 15-year-old and you tell them, listen, I want you to be able to do these things, I become responsible. Why? Because I have the ability to accomplish that and I know what they want. So this is what I, I, want, you, I want you to read this out loud for me because I want to show you something cool about this word. He took responsibility. Ability. I want you to read this out loud with me. <laughs> One, two, three. He took responsibility for the reality. All right, let's look at the word. You ever thought about the word responsibility? You ever broke that word down? You done a word study? I've never done a word study in my life until I became a preacher. Word study on responsibility. You ever think, think about, what is responsibility? Just say it in two parts. Response, ability. The ability to respond. Thank you, Gene. You get a star. A. The ability to respond. You become responsible. You gain a responsibility the moment that you have the ability to respond to a request that has been given to you by an authority figure. That is the exact definition of what responsibility means. And so despite the way that we want to think and despite the justification, despite the inner lawyer in us that wants to defend our pitiful attitude towards God sometimes, we know the reality that Jesus Christ wants in our life. 
We know the reality that Jesus Christ wants for our marriage. We know the reality that Jesus Christ wants for our finances. We know the reality that Jesus Christ wants. Put simply, Jesus Christ wants our life to reflect his glory in our life. And just like those teenagers, a lot of times we will sit on the proverbial couch of life and we will watch TV and we will be entertained knowing good and well what Christ desires for our life and we have the ability to respond to it and to do it, but instead we sit our lazy butts on the couch and we watch TV for 50 years and die retired and happy. All right? Now, whether you want the responsibility or not, the moment that you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you start to follow him and you start to do, you become a Christian and he becomes an authority in your life and you know what he desires for your life and you have the ability to accomplish those things. So you become an irresponsible Christian. Because there's sometimes in our heart and there's sometimes in our mind we know the things that we need to change in our lives. We are not stupid. Many of us are not ignorant. We are fully aware that we got to stop lying. Or we are fully aware that we got to stop being dishonest. Or we are fully aware that we got to cut out some relationships in our life. Or we are fully aware that God doesn't want us just getting wasted every other weekend. We are fully aware that God wants us to do this in our marriage and to do this in our finances. And we know that we are not. But in the longer that we sit on the couch, the more irresponsible we become. And Paul was saying, listen. I know what Christ wants for me. I I may not know everything, and I may not have obtained everything, but I don't have to ask questions about what he has already told me to do. And because I have a responsibility, I have the ability to respond, I'm going to press on, I'm going to strive towards, I'm going to work for the goal that I know that Christ wants me to accomplish. He says that I've given you all the power, I've given you all the spirit, I've given you the word, the truth, and the directions, and the only thing I'm waiting on is for you to get your butt up off the couch and to move towards that which I want you to have in this life. But a lot of times we'll just sit there on the couch waiting for some magic trick to take place, and all of a sudden us be different. And we justify this in our minds. You know, well, if God didn't want me to lie, he just, he'd take that sin away from me. Well, if God, if God didn't want me to do that, he'd just take that desire away from me. If God, if God wanted to bless me, he'd just give me more money. Manage the money that he's already given you. Manage the life that he's already given you. You stop concentrating on everybody else and you look within your own life. Get up off the couch and take ownership over the life that he's given you. All right? That's what it takes. And Paul says, listen, you don't have to do that. Y'all don't have to listen. But for me, for my life, at this time, I will press on to take a hold of what I know in my heart. Jesus Christ took a hold of me. He said, I know what Christ accomplished on the cross. I know what he wants in my life. And so I am not going to stop until I see that done in my life. Because I have the ability and I have the permission from Christ that I need. We need more proactive Christians in the church today. We need more people with more guts and courage to stand up and to accomplish the things that Christ has already asked us to accomplish. You know the thing I get so sick and tired of hearing, I'm just waiting on God. Waiting on God. Waiting on God to tell me, tell me what to do. He already told you not to cheat on your wife. Stop. It's waiting on God to tell me what to do. It's waiting on God to, to release me. 
It's waiting on God. God is waiting on you. God is waiting on you. He spent 7,000 years telling you everything you will ever need to know. Read it and then do it. Or you could just go to church for 50 years and die. That's up to you, man. You decide. Sometimes I just get annoyed with that. All right, you guys done being offended? On to the good stuff. He goes on and says, Brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing. This is huge. Brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Paul's focused on what he's doing. But I think it's unique. He's not just focused on one thing. He's focused on this one idea, this one system. He says, I'm focused on forgetting about yesterday. I'm focused on forgetting about the mistakes of yesterday. I'm focused on forgetting what I, the way I failed and the way I messed up and the mistakes I made yesterday. He says, I'm focused on that. Now, you got to think about that. Paul says, I am focused on forgetting my failures from yesterday. This is something I think, I mean, you may not need it, but I need this huge in my life because you are a foolish person if you think that your pastor is perfect. All right? I know I think I am sometimes, but I am far from it. And you don't know how many times I'll mess up or I'll, I talk about, you know, managing your finances well, and then I blow it. Or I talk about, you know what, you know, managing your marriage well, and then I have a bad day and yell at Courtney. Or I, you talk about managing, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, what a hypocrite. What a loser. How could I expect any of my people to do it if I can't do it? And I, there's just this stress on me in this way. Listen, at the end of the day, Man, I'm just as human as you are. You're just as human as I am. You're just as human as a person sitting next to you. And if you reach true perfection in this life, congratulations. Go somewhere else. All right? Can't have you sitting in my church. I'm just kidding. Perfect people, you're allowed here too. All right, but you've got to get to a place in your life where you forget you forget the way that you failed yesterday. You forget the stupidity of yesterday and you start preparing for tomorrow. Because if you become one of those people that just wallow in your own sin and wallow in your own failures and wallow in your own mistakes, you will spend every single day wallowing in what happened yesterday. You can't fix it. You can't change it. You can't take it back. You can put it under the mercy and the blood of Jesus Christ, and then you forget about it just like he's forgotten about it, and you move on and you start preparing for tomorrow. Paul says, this is what I focus on. I don't focus on the fight I had yesterday. I'm preparing to not have another one tomorrow. I'm not focusing on the lie I told yesterday. I am focusing on not being, I mean, being honest tomorrow. Don't focus on not being honest. That will not be good for anybody. <laughs> Paul says, forget about the sins of your past. Forget about the mistakes of your past. Forget about it and prepare for tomorrow. That also means that you've got to forget about the mistakes of others. You gotta forget about the mistake. You gotta forget how other people wronged you. You gotta forget about how he yelled at you or how she yelled at you or how he lied to you or how she lied to you. You gotta forget about those things. You gotta forgive other people and you gotta move on and stop holding things against people and stop guilt trips and all those other cool things that people do all the time to ruin each other's lives. Forget about it. Move on and prepare for tomorrow. 
He says, I press on to reach the end of the race, and I receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. This is kind of similar to what we finished with last week, but he said, I, I press on, I strive towards, I keep going to reach the end. He said, I'm living my life with the end in mind. I'm living my life with the main end goal of life, which is ultimately to be with Jesus Christ. And when you think about life like that, and I know it's so difficult, I know it is so hard, especially the younger you are, the dumber you are, and like, you just, you get so lost in this life, and it's so hard to think about the end, but if you could ever get to a place where you could live your life with the end in mind, you would value things like your marriage and the people in your life and your kids and the opera. You would value it so much. You would value the breath, the, the air in your lungs. If you got to a place in your heart in your life where you could really think about the end and think about and live as if the end was truly coming, think about how many things you would do different in your life. And Paul says, this is me, man. He says, this, I'm living with the end in mind. I know I'm going to go as hard as I can today because tomorrow might not ever come. I'm going to love my wife as much as I can today because I might not be able to tomorrow. I'm going to do everything in my power to take care and to raise my children today because I might not be here tomorrow to teach them. And I know you could think, well, that's pretty sad, Jordan. I, I just wanted to be happy this morning. Here you are, second Sunday in a row, talking about dying. No, I'm telling you, man, it ain't about dying. It's about living it's about living, because if you think that you're going to live forever, you will waste every day of your life. But if you just get to a place in your heart and you get to a place in your life where you know that it might not be tomorrow, but that sooner or later we will be with Christ and we've got this one life to live, you will value so much more. And it's not a sad thing. It's not a depressing thing. It's not, it's not I'm, I don't want you to wake up every day and go, well, I'm probably going to die today, so I'm going to take care of all things. That's not what it's about. It's just about you just knowing in your heart and knowing in your life, at one point or another, you will stop breathing in this life and you will wake up with Christ. And while you are here, God has given you plenty of things to enjoy, plenty of things to strive towards, plenty of things to do, namely giving him as much glory as humanly possible, but to loving the people that he's connected you with, loving your family, loving your husband and loving your wife and loving your kids and, and doing all the things that matter. It's just when you think about it, when you truly get to a place in your heart, in your life, in your mind, where you can think about it and you can live like you know the end is coming, it just makes everything just seem so much better. I don't listen to much country music. All right? I'm a 90s rock guy. I know it's not Christian. I'm a pastor. 90s rock guy, hands down, love it. Not a country guy. But Tim McGraw, I think, <laughs> sings this song where he talks about his father. He says his father got bad news from the doctor. It was cancer. And he starts talking about all the things he wished he could have done. And he could have, you know, gone one more. I'm not going to sing it. I don't know. But, you know, I'm not gonna, he, you know he's going to do all these things. And, and if you listen to country music, I'm sure you know about it. You know, it's just like, I love all the country people. Yes, sir. <laughs> gotcha, old Timmy. All right. But it's just such, I'm telling you, like, y'all going to think I'm a pansy. I don't care. Every time I hear that song, I can't, I'll, I think about my dad, and then I just start crying. I don't know why. 
But it's because it, in that song, it puts it in perspective. He puts life in perspective. And he says, you know what? If I knew, if I knew that that was going to be the last three months, if I knew that was going to be the last three months, man, I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have wasted so much time on stupid stuff. Man, I'd have gone fishing with him every day. If I, would have, if, I, if I would have known that was going to be the last three months, I, 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 would, I would have done anything he wanted. I would have hung out with him. I would have made sure I made it to dinner. I would have made, you know, he just goes through all these things, man. And it's just a beautiful, it really is just a beautiful song. And in fact, if we could just get that about our life, man, like that we never know, we genuinely never know. And it's not a sad or depressing thing to live with the end in mind, but to know that, listen, today, let's cherish each other and let's love each other. Let's not fight about money. Let's go, let's go hang out and love each other. Let's, let, let's not argue about all the things we've got to do. Let's just, get, let's just enjoy each other and love each other. And it puts so many things in perspective. And Paul says, that's how I'm going to live my life. I know, I know that eventually, whether it's tomorrow or it's, a year from now, I know eventually they're going to get me and they're going to kill me for my faith in Christ. And so I'm going to preach my heart out every day of my life. I'm going to witness to everybody I can come in contact with. I'm going to write as many letters as I can write. I'm going to spend every waking second of my life trying to achieve glory for the only living God. And at the end of the day, that's got to be our, our desire too. To know that we are Christians, we are believers in Jesus Christ, we follow after the Son of a living God, and that we only have a certain amount of time to achieve the things that he wants us to achieve and to give him the glory that he so much deserves. And so for my life, Paul says, and I'm saying for my life, it's about the glory of God, it's about those people that God's given me and accomplishing what God has asked me to accomplish. He lived with the end of mind. He goes on. He says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. All of us then who are mature, and I want you to just hang out here for a second. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Offense number two. <laughs> I don't care how long you've been a Christian, how long you've been going to church, how many Bible verses you've memorized, how many denominational ladders you've climbed. I literally could care less because none of those things match the way that God views spiritual maturity. And Paul says, I want all of us who are mature to think and to view life in the ways that he just described. This is huge. So if truly, at the depth of your soul, if that's not how you view life and how you think about things, by fault you are what? Not mature in Christ. It means that you are on your way to becoming mature, which is what we all need to be. There's all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point, if any point that you disagree, 
any point that you think that what Paul is saying is wrong, he says, I pray that God will make it clear to you. And that's my prayer today for this church. My prayer today for this church. You know what? I, you know, I want a big church. I want, I want hundreds of thousands of people to get saved. And I, I do. But do you know what I want so much more than that? Than having 5,000 people sitting in seats? I want people who are solely committed to Jesus Christ in every area of their life. I want maturity in my people. That's my hope more than anything else is that somehow you will reach the maturity that Christ wants for you and that God will change any view that you have that is different from that of the scriptures and from that of Paul. But when he, when he writes this word, it's right under, if you, ever, if you look in your Bible, it's separated just a little bit from this because he's going back from the beginning. He's saying all these things and then he stops and he goes back to what he said at the beginning. And so I'm going to talk to you, just I'm going to close out this series and close out this sermon with what I think is one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible. It's what he's talking about. It's what he's bringing this back to. Those who are mature think like this, and it's the scripture right here. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ. Your level of maturity will be highly tied to how true this is in your life. Your level of maturity in Christ will be highly tied and connected to how true this is in your life. And this is coming from a man who has accomplished much, much more than just about anybody in this room. This is coming from a man who spent the majority of his life putting his faith and his trust in himself and in the law, and in religion, and in politics, and in wealth, and in military power. And he says, now all these things, now that I know Christ, now that I see him, and now that I feel him, and now that I, I know him, all of these things are worthless. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have thrown away I have discarded everything else counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him this is what Paul's saying he's saying listen I want Christ in front of me I want Christ behind me. I want Christ to my right. I want Christ to my left. I want Christ under me. I want Christ on top of me. I want Christ in my marriage. I want Christ in my relationship. I want Christ in my finances. I want Christ in my friendships. I want Christ in my business. I want Christ in my career. I want Christ when I'm at the gas station. I want Christ when I'm driving down the road. I want Christ in everything in my life. I want 
to know Jesus Christ. I want to know the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want to see him and feel him and reflect him and live for him and suffer for him and sacrifice for him. I want every single thing in my life to be centered around the Savior and the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ. And compared to that, everything else is worthless. Compared to that, everything I own, everything I've obtained, every corporate ladder I've climbed, every car I drive, every house I've built or lived in, everything else on this planet compared to knowing the creator of the universe is worthless. It is nothingness. There is no depth to it at all. There is nothing. And I believe that with all of my heart. The problem is, is that many times, myself and you included, we will always strive after so many other things. Why? Why? Because the desire of our heart will betray what is most valuable to us. I'm going to tell you something this morning. You like it, you don't like it. I don't care if you leave and never come back. If this statement is not true in your life, then you need to shut down your life until it becomes true in your life. Did you hear me? This statement right here, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. If this is not true in your life, you need to shut down everything else in your life until it is true in your life. You need to lock yourself away in a cave for 21 days. Ignore everything and everybody else because there is nothing you could possibly do with your time that would be able to give you as much value as making this statement become true in your life. And you think, well, I got to work. Go to work. Do your job. You go home. You get into a room and you find Jesus like you've never found him before. I gotta raise kids. You raise your kids, you feed your kids, you put them in bed, and then you lock yourself in a room until this statement becomes true. Well, I don't really know how to pray. Learn how to pray. Well, I don't really read scripture. Open your freaking Bible and read it. Well, I don't have a lot of time. Stop all your hobbies. Right? Get out of all your sports. Get out of all your fantasy games. Stop working out if that's what it takes. Whatever you gotta do in your life, you do that thing. And if you can't do that, then your desire of your heart is something earthly, and it is not Jesus Christ. And you are not on your way to reaching maturity in Christ. You are on your way to reaching maturity in the wisdom of this world. It's betrayed you so many times. Why would you keep going after it? How many times, how many times will you let sin and you let the enemy and you let this world take from you everything you have before you give everything you have to Jesus Christ? How many Sundays will you sit in this room and you twiddle your thumbs while the rest of us worship and praise the living God before you go after the Christ who saved you? How many years will you waste 
building up your kingdom in this earth to watch it burn down in the last days? When will Jesus Christ become the Christ of your life? There is nothing in this world that compares to the value of knowing the Son of the living God and to knowing his wisdom and to searching him out and connecting with him, to being one with him and him being one with you. There is nothing. You take your money, you take your wealth, you take your cars, you take your kingdom. I'll take a box on the side of the street as long as Jesus is with me. I'm telling you, I promise you, there is nothing, everything you give yourself to and it will betray you and it will take everything from you. There is one Jesus Christ. So look in your life. Commit yourself. Go after Christ and I will promise you, you will never regret it. You know one thing that I've never heard in my life? I've heard all kinds of other a midlife crisis. You know, man, I, I just gave myself to this career for so long and it's just a waste of my time. Or I did this, right? Nobody hit 55, 60 years old and go, you know what? I just served Christ too much. It just didn't, it just didn't do, it just didn't do it for me. I've never heard that ever, neither have you. I just gave Christ everything I had for 50 years and now I just feel unsatisfied about life. I'm going to Vegas in a red Corvette marrying a stripper. You never heard that in your entire life because those people who go after Jesus Christ, they never come back with regrets. But every single person who sleeps this life away, watching the proverbial TV of life, giving themselves to this world, they will wake up one day and regret the life that they lived. And the saddest thing is one day, all of us will bow a knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some of us will say it with immense celebration, and some of us will say it with immense regret. So I challenge you this morning, with the end in mind, evaluate your life. Give Christ everything you got. Give Christ everything you are. Give Christ your marriage. Give Christ your friendship. Give Christ your relationship. Give Christ your finances. Give Christ your purpose. Give Christ your career. Give Christ every single thing you have. And watch him turn your life into some sort of awesome you can't explain. If you guys will stand with me. I pray, Lord God, right now that you will let your spirit and your presence rest in this room, God. I pray, Father, that you will open up the hearts and the minds of every single person here, Lord God, and that we will see you and know you and feel you this morning, God. I pray, Lord, right now that you will let your spirit guide your truth and your living word into the deep parts of our hearts and the deep parts of our souls. I pray, Lord God, right now that you will convict what needs convicted, God, and you will place desire where there needs to be desire, God, but that you will raise up a people who will worship you and who will praise you and who will live for you and who will chase you and who will go after you and who 
who will not stop to find you and to know you in the most deepest, intimate ways. Lord God, I pray, Lord God, right now that you would just move in the hearts and the lives of every single person and every single family in this room. Lord God, that you will just consume us with your spirit, that you will just consume us with your presence. Lord God, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room that does not know you, Lord God, and that they feel that feeling, Lord God, they know that you are calling them. I pray, Lord God, that you will let them come to the front this morning or come to know you right there in their seats, Lord God. But I pray, Lord, as we come to the end of this series, Lord God, this series about change, Father, I pray, Lord God, that you will let us see and you will let us know the truth, God. Whether we accept it or not, you will let us know beyond the shadow of a doubt there is nothing in this life, not a single thing that compares to the glory of a living Christ. I pray, Lord, that you will become so real to us this morning, that you will consume the depths of our hearts and the depths of our lives, Lord God, as we stand and as we worship, Lord God, or as we bow at the altar, Father God, no matter where we are or what we do in the next 15 minutes, I pray, Lord God, that you will let your spirit raise all of us up for you, God. I thank you, Father, for your holy and powerful living and active word. I pray, God, that you will consume us entirely. In your holy and your precious name, I worship you. Let's worship you this morning.